the very notion of having this summit and having it so early and having it down at the Winter White House uh, is such a big get for the Chinese. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, and I'm joined by a new guest who I am pleased to welcome to the table, FP's chief diplomatic correspondent, Colin Lynch. Joining us from Washington is Colin Call, who is co-editor for FP's Shadow Government blog with Julie Smith and Derek Chalet. He is currently a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in the Security Studies program. And from Palo Alto, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Don't have a mug yet, ER nerds? Get them while they're hot and still free. I love all the stuff you guys do about those mugs on Twitter. It is a source of endless entertainment to me. And I know to Corey, right, Corey? Indeed, it delights me. Exactly. We are going to start to sell the mugs online soon. So write in. Yeah, no, it's true. So write in with your best idea or saddest sob story, and maybe you'll get one. Email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from not one, not two, but three tiny podcast studios, we had the following conversation. So, Jared Kushner, he has every job in America. He's a businessman. He runs real estate empires. He's married to the fabulous Ivanka Trump, who is a senior White House official and a business person. He seems to be responsible for China, where we have a big meeting next week, Israel and Middle East peace, which has been kind of a thorny problem for a while. He's gone off to Iraq. He's responsible for Mexico. He's dealing with health care. He's dealing with business liaison. This guy must be the smartest, most capable most experienced person on the whole planet. I can't even believe... He seems to have the entirety of the president of the United States' job. It's amazing. It's amazing. And to think he's doing this with, you know, where did he get this government experience? Trump University, perhaps. Perhaps there's a course in this. Colin, do you have confidence in our system now that we know that the real president of the United States is little Jared. You know, I'm not sure that uh, Jared Kushner is the president quite yet, but he's certainly the secretary of everything. I think one of the things that, that troubles me is that our country is increasingly looking like a lot of countries around the world that are run kind of as a family business, where essentially people are picked uh, not necessarily for their particular talents or knowledge, but because of their family loyalty. And so, I look, I don't know Jared Kushner, but I don't know any 36-year-old on planet Earth who could handle the portfolio that he's been given. And he also has this strange habit of, like, going out of town and, and uh, at, at really interesting times. So we have this she visit coming up in Mar-a-Lago that supposedly uh, uh, Jared Kushner is the point person for, and he hops on a plane with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and goes off to Iraq uh, in the heat of... Of battle uh, for the healthcare legislation a couple of weeks ago. He went off for skiing and ice cream in, in Aspen. Uh, so he does also have a, a penchant for kind of disappearing uh, from Washington, D.C. at moments where you would think a guy would be, you know, sitting in his office uh, doing his homework or working the phones uh, for some pretty important meetings. So it's troubling. I, I have no way to, to judge whether he's up for the job or not. But like I said, I don't know any 36-year-old who would be. How old are you? <laughs> I'm 45. 
You're such a hater. When you were 36, you were probably fairly bright. When I was 36, I walked into the Pentagon. I'd never had a secretary before, and suddenly I had five of them, and I was completely overwhelmed. The good news was I had 45 people working for me and a two-star general as my deputy. I wasn't the, the secretary of everything. Okay. Well, and you did a nice job, and we're, we're delighted that you blossomed into it as you did. Perhaps that'll happen with Jared. How do you feel, Colm? Do you feel... You know, you deal at the U.N. every day with some of these uh, potentates where they run this way. Maybe this will work out just great. Well, let's look at how well he's done so far on, on areas where he has had some authority. I mean, clearly he doesn't. Nobody's got the bandwidth to handle all these issues with a serious degree of kind of depth. So, you know, he was involved in an effort early on, even before the election, to try and kill off a U.N. Security Council effort to pass a resolution condemning settlements, didn't achieve that. He's also, you know, sort of talking about getting involved in or, or supported the idea of sending uh, the uh, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. That hasn't happened. So his kind of initial kind of forays in foreign policy haven't gone that well, haven't really achieved much. And I get a sense that from people who know him that, you know, he's gone from that point, pivoted to trying to sort of figure out what's going on, meet with a lot of Arab ambassadors and other foreign ministers from the region and kind of really get to know that this is kind of a learning experience for him and that he needs to sort of think more deeply about it and meet more people. I had a conversation with a senior Arab diplomat last week um, who was, you know, we were asking sort of what sort of player is he in the Middle East outside of uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict? And he said, well, we really don't deal with them. Uh, we deal with Mattis and, you know, on issues like um, certainly on Yemen and, and, and Iraq. I mean, he's going to, he's in Iraq now, so he will have some sort of sense of what's going on there, but he doesn't seem to really be a player. So maybe he kind of dips in and then sort of dips out and then comes back, you know, I don't know whether to make decisions or, or not. You're a deep state hater. You're just part, <laughs> you're, you're just a spokesperson for all that's wrong with America. Here's a young guy, a fresh view, a new perspective, a millennial, uh, sure, he had the benefit of lots of family wealth and marrying into the right family. Um, but, you know, this is what we need, Corey, is we need a guy like this out there with new ideas because people like Colin and Colin are the ones that got us into this mess in the first place. So I do have a slightly more positive view on this than either of those guys do, which is that I basically think the American government is built to be run by amateurs and can be run relatively effectively by amateurs. Allow us to recall how inexperienced Barack Obama was when he was elected president of the United States. So um, lots of people come into government without a bunch of experience, and a lot of people come in with experience that actually gets in the way of them doing government jobs well. So I wouldn't fetishize experience, but what I would caution the administration... Fetishize experience? Seriously, (laughs) am I hearing this? First of all, Barack Obama, who had too little experience to be president, had been a senator for four years. He'd been an Illinois state legislator. He'd been the editor of the Harvard Law Review. He actually had something to his credit. Jared Kushner, I maybe, I don't know what he had, a bar mitzvah? I mean, I don't know what this dude has been doing. So, so I'm not arguing that Jared Kushner is ideally suited for the expansive portfolio the President of the United States has given him. I am just saying 
that a lot of the work of the American government can actually be done by a person of sense and judgment without that much experience. The other thing I would say, though, and here's the flip side of the coin, is that, you know, there's a downside to giving jobs to members of the family. And I believe Bill Clinton learned it at the start of his administration when he put the First Lady in charge of health care reform, which is if it turns out to be a bungle, you have a much harder time distancing yourself from the policy outcomes. And the problem for President Trump is not only, as Colin said, that Jared Kushner does not appear to be achieving anything, but also that when he fails across all these policy fronts, you can't really distance yourself from him as easily when he's your son. First of all, I do want to interject to our loyal listeners out there that it sounds like Corey is talking to us from the bottom of a well. Um, I, you know, David has put me there for my view on fetishizing experience. Right. She is being penalized. And I'm sorry that you're being penalized with the sound. But actually, we wanted Corey in this so much that we've jerry-rigged this system. And I just ask your forbearance. We'll try to make things as listenable and clean as possible and ensure that in the future it doesn't sound like we're in a war zone. We're not in a war zone, Colin. But we do have a big meeting coming. <laughs> Jared Kushner is in a war zone right now. But we do have a big meeting coming up next week with Xi Jinping, where Jared is the key guy. Also, it turns out his family has some real estate interests in China. Would you call that experience? Yeah, I mean, look, where he does have experience is obviously uh, some in the business world. Uh, he's, you know, he's made a lot of money uh, through his family business. Um, look, I, there's a lot of complicated webs uh, between uh, at the intersection of uh, personal profit uh, and this administration. Um, and it obviously starts all the way at the top uh, with Donald Trump himself. But the entire Trump clan uh, is so enmeshed uh, in these networks uh, that in almost any other setting we would describe as corrupt um, that it's really, I think, something new um, for uh, for this administration. I think that I think the big issue, you know, the big issues coming up in Mar-a-Lago is kind of what tone uh, does uh, Trump take, and how serious is he about trying to put uh, uh, the U.S.-China relationship on a path that balances the need to cooperate with China uh, with uh, the need to be tough with them on the right things, but not everything. And, you know, Kushner is supposedly running a quarterback uh, on that particular play. I have no idea what uh, angle he's likely to take. But I do think there are real divisions within uh, the Trump administration on the economic piece of this uh, between kind of the economic nationalists, people like Bannon and Navarro, uh, you know, potentially the Commerce Secretary Ross, uh, who want to take a much sharper edge towards towards uh, China on the trade enforcement front, potentially on the tariffs front. Um, and yet you have others like Gary Cohn, perhaps, and and the national security types uh, who will be arguing that, you know, this is the worst time to start a trade war uh, with China, given, uh, you know, tensions in the South China Sea, tensions over Taiwan, and especially uh, North Korea racing forward with their missile and nuclear program. So, you know, uh, the the all the early reports suggest that, you know, uh, Xi Jinping is going to come in with a bunch of tweetable deliverables that is, you know, 
know, promises for jobs and investment and basically try to give uh, uh, Trump a bunch of wins that he can, you know, blast out in 140 characters and create the illusion uh, that, uh, you know, things are fine with China on the economic front in the hopes uh, that that gets, Trump, that gets Trump to back off on some of his uh, economic nationalism. We'll see. Um, I'm, I'm more uh, interested uh, in how they try to handle some of these uh, issues like North Korea, where it's going to take a real deft touch uh, to try to get the Chinese in, in the right place, given, given uh, the nature of their interests. Well, Calm, you're a seasoned observer, which means, you know, you're old. <laughs> and and you've been you've been following this. New presidents come in and they always say they're going to be tough on China. And then all the business people around them and all the pragmatists on the foreign policy side say you can't be tough on China, really. And at the end of the day, they end up celebrating their great relationship with China and minimizing the problems that exist. That's going to happen here too, really, isn't it? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Colin mentioned this idea of, of an illusion. They need some sort of illusion. And on North Korea, China has provided that illusion to you know successive governments in the past. Um, the the core to the sort of effectiveness of international sanctions on North Korea to get them to stop developing their nuclear program has been China's willingness or unwillingness to enforce them. And there is you know. Tons of evidence that they're that they're not doing it in a serious way. However, every time there is a crisis that builds up, there's a sort of emergency meeting in the Security Council. They need to respond to a nuclear test. China comes in and does something dramatic. They start enforcing, you know, border checks. They started recently. They said that they would end uh, for this year uh, coal exports, which was a sort of you know, key form of revenues for the government. Um, that they would do all these things, and then. There's a pattern, though, where they will take sort of a dramatic step like that, and everybody says, oh, China is finally serious about this. And then you kind of look at it a couple weeks down the road, months, years down the road, and you realize that it hasn't been enforced. So I, I presume that they'll come out of this meeting, and she will give them something, you know, on, on you know, to, to make them happy on North Korea. But we'll, whether it'll be durable, whether it will really change the game, I, I kind of doubt it. So, Corey, Colin laid out this kind of way to manage the, the narcissistic nitwit in chief, which is you come in, you have a meeting, you do some deals, you let him declare some victory, you talk about foreign direct investment, you talk about some jobs, he gets to tweet it all out. Behind the scenes, you say you're going to work on things together. And, uh, you know, he maybe gives him a bone on the trade stuff saying we have our differences, but we'll work on them. And then on North Korea, uh, Trump will come out and say something like uh, we had a great discussion and we're very confident that Chinese and us will be able to work together. And Trump gets to declare victory and the Chinese go home and say, well, we played that boob, and in three years he's gone, and we can move on to the long term again. Is this really the formula for managing the dude in the White House now? The only thing that I disagree with in Colin's narrative is that the Chinese have to wait three years before getting all sorts of advantages out of this deal. 
I really do think the president's at the risk of being taken to the cleaners by the Chinese because the vanity and ignorance are a poor strategic combination, and those appear to be what he's leading with on this, and add that there doesn't appear to be connection to the vast array of expertise on China matters inside the American government. I know I just said you don't need to be an expert to do well in the American government. I'm talking about the political appointees. There is all sorts of expertise within the American government on China, and it's not clear to me any of it is being tapped by an administration about to go into a major summit. And the president's voluble and often contradictory statements, uh, didn't he tweet out at one point that the Chinese should only be taken to McDonald's, no state dinners for them until we get the raised uh, deficit under control? You know, that kind of foolishness sets him up to be taken advantage of. And I would like to believe that cooler heads will prevail, but I don't see the hearing wheel of Donald Trump connected to the cooler heads of expertise in the bureaucracy of the American government, or even to political appointees that have that expertise. So, yeah, I think this is likely to be bad. So, Colin, give me your best case and your worst case for the meeting with Xi Jinping. Well, look, I, I think the administration, I mean, at least from what I've read, is conducting a strategic review. I think they've started off, though, and 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 uh, and very much the wrong foot. I mean, the the fact that uh, Xi Jinping is being feted down at Mar-a-Lago in the same way that you know Prime Minister Abe of Japan was. You know, Abe is obviously a close uh, democratic uh, ally, one of our closest allies in the world. Uh, Xi uh, is a competitor and a sometimes uh, adversary, and the very notion of having this summit and having it so early and having it down at the winter White House uh, is such a big get for the Chinese, the Trump administration never should have given him that for free. It was a it was something the Chinese really wanted. And if Trump was really good at the art of the deal, he would have dangled out the possibility of a summit and stretched this out for months. They would have run a, you know, a detailed, deliberate strategic review and then figured out how to use the leverage of the visit itself uh, to get some gain. So look, the most positive thing that could happen is they figure out a way to avoid a trade war. The Chinese maybe do some relatively positive things uh, for uh, the U.S. economy, and they promise to shape up a little bit on intellectual property or the treatment of businesses uh, in in China. Uh, they agree notionally to do more uh, on North Korea, you know, uh, and kind of uh, they leave uh, they leave all kind of with smiley faces. Um, I mean, that's I guess good from the that would be good from the vantage point of not having a conflict with the with China. But I don't I I really think that no matter what comes out of this summit, uh, there are some things on the horizon uh, that are just going to rub the Chinese the right ways uh, the wrong way. So you're going to even if you have the optics of the summit itself uh, are positive, you know, in the next in the next couple months, uh, you know, you could potentially have a very large arms sale to Taiwan. Uh, you could start having uh, freedom of navigation operations um, uh, again in the South China Sea. North North Korea is going to, you know, test more missiles. They're going to get closer to uh, an ICBM. Uh, there's going to be growing pressure uh, w- among the faction of economic nationalists to take a harder edge towards China in the economic uh, domain. So part of me thinks that the summit will be a lot of kind of optics, uh, but that it's not likely to transform uh, the relationship in a meaningful way or avoid the conflict that's looming down the road. You know, Colin, Colin sounds a little bit to me like a Democrat and a policy wonk. <laughs> 
you know, he sounds, you know, he's like, well, we would do this and it would be systematic and we would have all this substance and here's some talking points. This is, you know, I mean, first of all, the most powerful man in the world is going to visit Donald Trump at. <laughs> th thanks, nice Corey. Done, David. Thank you. At the Cheeseball Palace in Florida. Um, where some of the most important insurance executive weddings in America have ever taken place. And w what does Trump want? Well, he wants a picture where he's like sitting there going, look, I know Xi Jinping. It's just like Kanye West. It's going to be the exact same thing. And it's like, I know Kanye West. Here's a picture of us. We get along. Everything's fine. And and all this kind of wonky stuff that 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 Colin's talking about, this is this is old foreign policy. We don't do this anymore, do we? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Colin talked about in terms of a get for the Chinese, and yes, it is. But I'm sure from Trump's perspective, it's a get for him. I mean, he is, you know, every day his presidency is the legitimacy of his presidency is being questioned. He's insecure about this. He wants to sort of demonstrate that he's presidential. And what better way than, than having the most powerful, you know, the other most powerful leader in the country to sit down for this big historic summit? Um, you know, it doesn't sound like the administration has developed a kind of set of real priorities or that they've really gone far enough in their kind of review of the policy with China to know exactly what it is they want. It'll be enough for them to get some, um, you know, good language on cooperation on North Korea and that sort of thing. But for me, I, I would think for Trump that this may be more about him as so much is than about the U.S. relationship with the Chinese. Corey, as you look at this upcoming meeting, do you think that because of all the factors that I was just talking to Colm about, these things are becoming less important in this era and that, you know, basically it's going to be pretty easy for these countries to kind of feed the beast, get the photo op, move on. Uh, uh, but frankly, all of them have got to be looking at Trump's political situation at home, his plummeting ratings, the Russia stuff you know, the investigations that are going on and thinking this is a weak president. We're not going to be able to get much. Let's massage his ego a little bit. Um, and we're on hold until we get a real president in the U.S.? No, I actually don't think that's likely to be the reaction. First, my experience with people who are not Americans is that the vast majority of them believe they understand a lot more about the American political system than they do. And they view it, there's this terrific description once given in a novel of the English, of American English, as a sort of, like a mongrel dog, right? So uncertain you never know when it's going to bite you. And I feel like that's got to be the way people, foreigners are worried about Donald Trump. Right, that you can't afford to believe the American system's actually going to work to tame this guy, and it's too soon to really write him off as completely ineffectual. And the people who seem to be advancing their country's interests, like Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, are investing early and deeply in personal relationship with the president. So, you know, the joke going around Twitter about the the Trump administration being your typical Arab despotism, right? Family members, business links, all that kind of stuff appears to be true. And it looks to me 
like even though the safest bet is to do what you suggest, David, which is talk only to the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and stay away from the president because you could even be the Prime Minister of Australia and have him go off on you. Everybody seems nonetheless to be trying to play nice with the president because he doesn't appear to have principled political principles. He does not appear to have a coherent set of beliefs. He seems to uh, give people who play golf with him and he likes what they want and not give it to anybody else. Colin, you've been in the position of advising the topmost officials in the U.S. government. I'd like you to play an intellectual thought experiment with me here and tell me what you think Xi Jinping's briefing on this Trump visit is. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the briefing is to to play to Trump's uh, vanity and, frankly, his ignorance. The two things that uh, uh, Corey mentioned earlier, that is to to basically try to give him a win, uh, try to pump him up and, and talk about how, uh, you know, great uh, he is and, and how amazing his victory was. Um, undoubtedly, you know, complain about the Obama administration and, and lean into the fact that they can do so much more productive business together. I, so I think I think flattery, and I also think taking advantage of the fact that the absence of expertise in the president himself and, and a lot of those folks around him, and the fact that they don't allow a lot of the real experts into the room, uh, they're going to stumble into some mistakes. So you saw a little bit of this when uh, Rex Tillerson was in China, and he started parroting a lot of the Chinese rhetoric about win-win solutions and a new model for great power relations, which you know the Obama administration tried to stay away from uh, defining uh, the relationship in precisely the way the Chinese did. Because that is read throughout Asia as us accommodating uh, China's desire for a sphere of influence, and it makes you know folks in Seoul and Tokyo and uh, and Australia and, and other places uh, very nervous. Um, you know the the, the real inter- the thing I'm interested in is whether uh, Trump will be able to literally pay attention. Uh, I mean I, I've never been in meetings with Xi, but by all accounts, you know the guy talks uh, in these kind of 15 to 20 minute long monologues with translation. Um, and yet Donald Trump is, you know, he basically has attention deficit disorder and he's 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 not able to kind of like sit still uh, for more than 30 seconds at a time before changing subjects. So the notion that he would kind of sit there and listen to a foreign leader kind of, uh, you know, talk at him for 15 or 20 minutes at a slice, I just don't know how the personal interaction uh, is going to be. And, uh, you know, and by the way, she doesn't play golf. So, uh, you know, I don't know what he's going to be doing at Mar Lago, maybe they're going to be sitting around poolside playing bridge or something. I have no, I have no idea. <laughs> you describe Trump, and he sounds like a big baby. And it just makes me think that maybe what the White House needs to do is to give him like an iPad. You know, when you see families with <laughs> badly behaved kids in restaurants, and they just stick an iPad in front of the kid and give him, let him play Candy Crush or something. Yeah, shiny object to distract him. And and what we just need to do is a presidential iPad. To keep the guy occupied so he doesn't cause any trouble. Is that something you think the White House could cook up? I mean, you used to work there. It's certainly within our technological uh, reach. And in fact, you know, Kushner's in charge of the governmental innovation oh, yeah, office. So actually, this could be something that Kushner himself could design uh, for his father-in-law. And I guess there was a recent study that suggested that that Trump kind of talks at a fifth grade level. So you have to design the game at the right level uh, for uh, for Trump. It can't be, you know... 
uh, super advanced. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, um, there, there's a lot of games that that people. I got to say, that's a reality show. I'd love to see. I'd love to see Donald Trump on "Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader?" <laughs> how how entertaining was that be? Um, <laughs> I think I might get my butt whipped on yeah, that yeah. as well. Actually, <laughs> no. I, 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 we've worked together long enough. Calm, you are smarter than a fifth grader. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> There's no, no, my, he's my smarter than an eighth grader. Well, no, she's actually a sixth grader now, so yeah, she's wait, definitely smarter than me. Watch your step, because when they enter sixth grade, they start listening yeah. to the ER. They stop around eighth grade. Calm, normally when a meeting like this would happen, you'd, you'd probably have some back-channel stuff going on at the U.N. You know, the U.S. uses the U.N. a lot for back-channel stuff with China. Uh, we, have a, uh, uh, we have a U.N. ambassador, apparently, according to what you've reported. Um, I'm not sure whether she's actually connected to the administration or not. She was part of their very well-coordinated, totally coincidental Tillerson, Mattis, Haley set of negative comments on Russia that came out the other day, which seemed very spontaneous to me. Is, do you think anything's going on that she's doing anything to prepare for this trip? Does she sit in alone in a room and wait for Washington to call? Um, she actually is doing something. She, it's, she's not going. She won't be there. But um, I, I just actually tweeted this at about midnight last night. I found out that Tillerson, you know, there have been a big question about why Tillerson's never spoken to the U.S. Secretary General, why he wasn't going to come to New York for the uh, U.S. presidency of the Security Council, and they've decided yesterday that he is now going to come and he's going to do a big event on uh, the 28th of April on North Korea. So basically, she did a press you know, conference yesterday and, you know, talking about how frustrated they are with China. He will come and try, you know, Tillerson will come. It'll be after the meeting, but, you know, they will send a signal that they want to kind of raise the pressure and the, and the sort of public profile of the North Korea issue and to highlight, you know, China's unwillingness to seriously enforce, you know, pressure and sanctions on North Korea. So there is a, a piece of this. It's not a very big piece, but, um, but and it'll come afterwards, but, um, but they are trying to coordinate something in New York. Two, two, two things strike me about this. One, you know, they make the announcement that they're going to do this thing showing their strong commitment to the UN and within hours announce they're not going to fund the UN Population Fund. So it's sort of strong, strong mixed message. And, and secondly, I, it seems to be the way Tillerson works is that he says he's going to do nothing until somebody complains loud enough and then he decides he'll do it. I'm not going to go to the NATO summit. Right. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, oh, okay, I'll do it. I'm not going to go to the UN. Oh, yes, you are. Then, then he'll do it. And that this, he seems to, his, his starting position is inertia. And and it just becomes whether there's enough pressure on him to force him to do something. Yeah, I, I wonder whether there will be enough pressure on him to start taking the press on foreign trips with him. But um, yeah, he I mean he has shown absolutely no interest in the UN at all. I mean he was in Bonn I think earlier in the year um, with the big G20 meeting, and the Secretary General was there and dying to meet him. And Tillerson's own staff had recommended that he make an early kind of connection with him just so they could develop some sort of rapport. And he said no. And the UN has been desperately trying to get even a phone call. And as of last week, they hadn't spoken, you know, Guterres hadn't spoken to Tillerson since he became Secretary General or since Tillerson became Secretary of State. And so maybe this will give them the first opportunity. Well, you know, 
even as we were taping this uh, uh, podcast, recording this podcast, since there's actually no tape involved, uh, Tillerson was asked a question about whether you know, he had any comment on Assad using chemical weapons on his people. And he didn't. <laughs> he had no comment. It's Tillerson. Yeah. T- Tillerson, I'm not even sure he's really there. You know, well, I, th- I mean, the interesting he, question about this is there There have been some reporting from the Syri- Syrian Observatory Group, which is sort of monitoring this. And they have been indicating that these kind of, I mean, not a, a, an attack of this level, but there have been increased in chemical weapons attacks since the beginning of the year. So it's two things are going to be very interesting, whether they're it, you know, they now feel somewhat emboldened under the Trump administration to do things that they may not have done under the Obama administration. Not that they were terribly, you know, terrified of, you know, of Obama using force either. But, <laughs> but still, uh, and also, and also, Russia blocked a resolution in January, which would have held the Syrians accountable for using chemical weapons. So the clear message from, you know, from certainly from the Security Council is that they're not going to do anything to you. Those of you who love these kind of discussions, even with our technical difficulties, will come back in a couple of days for more of the ER and Corey at the bottom of a well. Um, and maybe if she does a good job, we'll let her out uh, for future weeks. Um, perhaps you will come up with some good ER mug slogans to help get Corey out from the bottom of the well. In the meantime, <laughs> thank you, Colin. Thank you, Colum. Thank you, Corey. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll be back again soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host. Uh, The program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.